Hello, everyone, and welcome to React Roundup, the podcast where we keep you updated on all things React-related. Uh, we have a bunch of new hosts in the show, so this is going to be fresh for all of you that are listening uh, for a very long time. And yeah, let's get into it. So this show is produced by two companies, Top and Devs and Envoy. Top and Devs is where we create Top and Devs to get top end pay and recognition while working on interesting problems and making meaningful community contributions. And Envoy, which offers remote design and software development services on a performance basis. So clients only pay when tasks are delivered and approved. My name is Lucas Paganini. I'm the founder of Envoy and one of the hosts in the podcast today. And joining me in today's episode is first the one and only Charles Maxwood. Yeah, uh, old host, same as the new ho- or new host, same as the old. I, I started this show uh, way back when and uh, yeah, host, helped host it for the first three years. So anyway, I'm back. Good to see y'all. The kink is back. Yeah. <laughs> and we also have um, some new faces around here. Well, my voice is probably new to a lot of people, but we also have Peter Osa. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Uh, Peter Osa. So nice having, nice, it's nice meeting everyone in the panelists. Um, yeah, it's great to talk about React stuff with you all. Yeah. Great to have you, Peter. And we also have Chris Fruen. Yep. Hi, everyone. Uh, super happy to be here. Very excited to uh, to get into this episode and future episodes. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, so we have very high caliber professionals here. They're probably all smarter than me. Uh, so I'm going to introduce the topic and rely on their in- intelligence for us to really have that into this episode. <laughs> uh, so we were discussing, talking about how we deploy or single page applications. Of course, we're going to talk more specifically about React, but I imagine that a lot of what we're going to talk about here today is going to apply to a lot of folks who are uh, using other frameworks. So you might be using Vue um, or anything actually, really any single page application framework would probably benefit from the things that we're going to discuss here today. And yeah, so we're going to talk about how we deploy our single page applications. So uh, I'm going to just get things rolling and say that thus far, I've been a very happy Heroku customer for the front end. I don't think Heroku is the most cost-effective alternative, but it was it is so easy to to get things deployed into Heroku. Uh, there are many other alternatives that also make it easier nowadays, but I know that I sound young, but I'm actually quite old, so back in the days, Heroku was the <laughs> easiest one, and the other ones were not as close as easy as Heroku, and I just stick to it, so I think it serves me well for most projects. But I've been looking a lot into Cloudflare, Cloudflare pages because it's a serverless alternative, which means that I don't... First, if my website isn't being accessed as much, I don't have to pay for a dedicated server, which is a problem that I have currently with Heroku. Even if like my super old website is not being accessed anymore, I'm still having to pay for it, uh, which I think... Um, could be a better use of my money if I could spend it somewhere else. 
So I would like to pay on a performance basis, but also I can also have scalability issues because if I really have like millions of users trying to access my website at the same time, I'm going to have to go into Heroku and increase my Dinos, which is the name that they give to the servers. Uh, but if I go with the serverless approach, I don't have to worry about scalability at all. So that sounds really interesting to me. Got to be honest, I haven't migrated yet, but I'm really interested in the benchmarks I've seen so far. And yeah, I wanted to know what is the experience that you guys have with that? And if you think that this would be a good move or if I'm setting myself for failure, <laughs> if I go that route. My experience is totally different. So I'm curious what Peter and Chris have to say. Yeah. So my experience, yeah, Hiroku, yeah. Yeah, Hiroku is very great. Yeah, like, I'm actually, it's actually very awesome. Although, yeah, but um, I'm kind of like a fan of like Netlify for just starting mm-hmm. pages. So I think I'm that kind of guy. So just, okay, once I get, um, once I connect Netlify to my repo, I can just, build the application and then boom, it's also I just love how how simplistic it is. Yeah, and then there's still the old-fashioned way of GitHub and trying to do some configurations on how to set up like those SPAs and how to kind of like build it and then push it up to GitHub pages. But then, yeah, I think I'm a bit biased to Netlify. And then Vessel came along, so I'm still a fan of this as as well. So it's kind of very easy, especially for Next.js applications. So it's just so, so easy. Yeah, I think, well, Hiroku, yeah, I when I started with um when I started with SPAs, I kind of used Hiroku then when it was kind of free tier for like little projects and so on. Kind of enjoyed it as well. I and then I think um subsequently then I found Netlify and then started loving it. Yeah, so Chris, what do you think? What do you think is like? Yes, so actually, I am more on page with you. Uh, I'm also a huge Netlify fan. Um, Typically, like when I write about it or talk about it, I always say that it it almost feels like stealing (laughs) because they they're so generous with with the build time. And I, I think you can have I don't even know if there is a site limit, but it's just it's yeah they make it super easy. Uh, With that said, though, I I did start. Also, back back in the days, like like Lucas on Heroku, um, and I think, at least in my mind or what I remember, Heroku has a more you have like access to your terminal and everything, which you maybe have as well with Netlify. But Netlify is much more, I think, is much more for maybe someone who is more like a more like a sysadmin type person, where it's really like point and click. Whereas Heroku, you can kind of drill down and get more into the technical stuff. Um, but yeah, like you, Peter, like I think I, I moved away because I think I believe they took away the free tier entirely mm-hmm. not too long ago, yeah. a year ago. Yeah, I think ago. that's kind of messed everything up. Like there's so many guys, like I know so many guys were like, oh, they just want, they love Heroku and they just want to spin it off a little side project they were working on. Boom, the free tier was gone and we're like, oh no. And then start seeing Vessel and other options and yeah, they don't drop them on it. So I think that was kind of like the main hindrance for men because yeah it was it was really nice like the it's free alternative for small projects. Like I remember the days where for React app for even my Node.js backend projects, little projects, I could just spin it off and then boom. Yeah. But I think that was like a, a 
a limiter at first. What do you think, Lucas? Do you think the footer affected any of its use at any point? Oh man, you really needed to go there, right? Like that. <laughs> I was almost closing that. Room. Um, but yeah, you're right. I did felt that. I did felt that. Um, I know that we're not supposed to rely on free stuff. I mean, there's always somebody doing the work. So if we really uh, want to use it, we should be paying something to for the value that we're getting. But honestly, I, they made me used to the free servers. And then when they took it away, I was like, oh, come on. Like, there's so much that I'm going to have to pay now. Um, but one thing that I really like about Heroku is that it allows me to push entire Docker containers. I don't know uh-huh. if that's an option for Netlify because, as you said, I always saw Netlify as more of a uh, a platform as a service. So, as you were saying, it doesn't give me much control over the infrastructure, uh, which it, it might be just a misunderstanding from my end because I haven't really used Netlify that much. So, I don't want to put... Uh, Netlify in a position of saying, hey, Lucas, everything that you're saying is wrong because it might just be. I've never used it for production applications. But I know that Heroku allows me to push Docker containers. And I really like that because I tend to always uh, containerize everything that I'm doing, even if it's just the front end, even just front end applications. My experience has always been to containerize it as much as possible. It just makes all the other parts of my continuous integration pipeline easier to do because if I can containerize my application, um, then I can just substitute one project for the other and reuse all the other setup that I have for continuous integration, like running my uh, end-to-end tests with Cypress and building, serving, etc. So I, I really like that. And I really like the consistency of knowing that if it's, Working on my local Docker container is going to be working the same way in the cloud environment. So I try to stay away from those smart algorithms that you just like integrate your GitHub repository and they see that it has a package JSON. So they understand that it's Node and they automatically build and serve. I try to avoid that because I am a freak for control. So I really uh, wanted to to be sure of what I was deploying. Uh, So yeah, I really like when I can just deploy a Docker container, but I know that if I go into a serverless path, I won't be able to have that. So this is being my current um, question, right? So would it make sense for me to give up control to have that speed and scalability and ease of serverless? Or do I still want to have control and have Docker containers? And by the way, one of the things that that also make me want to have Docker containers instead of just um, a regular static serve is because I almost always use server-side rendering. And it's not always just a pre-rendered or pre-generated static website. There's always some pages that are indeed dynamic and they need to be dynamically rendered. So I can't just serve static files. I really need to have a little bit more power 
on the server to make sure that the pages that need to be dynamically rendered are dynamically rendered on the server. So I don't know if uh, if that changes uh, for you guys, if your experience is more like just, just relying on client-side rendering or if you also had this experience with server-side rendering and how you, you tackle that. So I'm going to jump in because you made me feel less weird. Because we're all talking about, <laughs> you know, deploying to something like Heroku, which my first experience with Heroku was when they initially launched, they were an online IDE for Ruby on Rails. And then they pivoted and did the the push to deploy. Um, and so I've been using Heroku for years and years and years and years. Um, there are definitely things I like about Heroku, but yeah, it's usually the cost that keeps me off of it. Um I just, I'm not willing to pay for it. I was a sysadmin before I was a programmer. And so I'm pretty comfortable going, I'm just going to set up a server to run this myself. And so I've done that before. Um, you, with the front-end frameworks, you don't have to do that nearly as often. But um, anyway, what I tend to do is, yeah, I tend to reach for Docker for my deployments. Um, I'm t- typically writing Rails and React if I'm writing React. And so a lot of times the deployment is effectively whatever build systems built into Rails pointed at my React files and it just, you know, it deploys it as part of the assets. And so um, a lot of the deployments have just been, you know, kind of a standard thing. And, uh, you know, we've gone through all the stages where, you know, initially it just kind of um, you know, put a digest on your JavaScript files. This is before React. Uh, once React kind of came around, then we had Webpack integrated with Rails, which was a huge pain in the neck because Webpack. And uh, I mean, it was better than the alternatives at the time, but now we've got much better alternatives, I think, than than uh, Webpack. Um, but yeah, so you would just, when you deployed, it just installed all the libraries for Rails. You had Node installed on your server, it did the build, it put it where Rails could find it, and then you just pointed your app at that, and then it would hit your APIs on your Rails app. Um, the other thing that I'm starting to get into now, and this is part of launching the um, React Geniuses, uh, which is going to be the video series and the meetups, um, is I, I want to build apps in kind of the big major frameworks, and so I've started playing with Redwood JS, and um, I'm still of the opinion that I want to do most of this with uh, Docker containers. And I've been using the new Rails tool for that. And it's called Kamal. And effectively what it does is you have uh, Docker containers that are built with your app in it. And so it knows how to build, right? Which is what Lucas is talking about. But the difference between using it to push to something like Heroku versus using Kamal is you go and you set up servers on... um, DigitalOcean or Linode or something like that. And then what it does is it actually uh, logs into that machine. It installs Docker on it if it doesn't already have it. And then it updates the images for you as you go. And, and so then you deploy it. You have your secrets on your local dev machine. You push it all up. It does the thing. There's also a way to integrate that with like one password if you want your secrets in one password. Um, and so, yeah, so it does all the build and push and deploy and everything like that. Um, and so that that's kind of the way that I've been rolling lately. I will say, though, that it's really nice deploying something like Netlify or Vercel where they have kind of the, they know how to build these apps. And so effectively what you wind up doing is you say, 
push it up to Vercel and Vercel says, oh, I know what to do with this. And it builds it for you. And so then, you know, unless you've got something a little bit different going on outside of the norm, which most people don't, um, it just happily does it for you. So there are definitely trade-offs. The Heroku thing is another, if you don't want to fuss with your server setup, um, right? They manage all that stuff. Um, I wind up, the only other drawback, I guess, to Heroku versus some of the other ones is that I feel like I wind up paying for Heroku and like six add-ons on any app that I run on it. And so um, if I, yeah, but I've been doing contract work. So if I have a client, right, who isn't going to pay me ongoing whatever to maintain their app, then Heroku is actually the way that I go because then nobody has to figure anything out, right? If if they If they have a problem with it running and I get hit by a bus, they can call Heroku and say my app isn't running and Heroku may be able to help them out. So anyway, that's kind of the long and the short of how I do deployments, which is different, I think, than most of the people in the React community. Yeah, one one thing I, I also wanted to say about things like Netlify, 99% of the time you can just rely on however they're, mm-hmm. like Lucas yep. said, they're reading your NPM. Um, but if you really want to get into the weeds, they have this, this TOML file and you can define, I mean, you can't do everything, but you can define quite a few things. Like if you need, I don't know, if you if you change domains or something and you need some custom redirects. Um, and I actually needed it recently. It wasn't in the TOML file, but one of the environment flags because, so I'm a primarily a Gatsby guy. So not, not quite mm-hmm. SBA, but, you know, building multi-page sites with React. Uh, and I, it's, it's quite a big site and I needed to bump, like there's a built-in environment variable for the memory that it uses when building. So I needed to bump that up. Um, but yeah, I faced that too. Okay. Yeah. And, but yeah, I, I would wonder, uh, I don't believe you can do Docker or anything like that, but I don't know, maybe Peter could, could speak a bit to that, but I don't have experience with that. Just, just with a TOML file. So. Yeah. I don't think it gives that much like ability kind of. So it's just, Mostly, I think that's where he actually shines. And I think, um, yeah, so um, Charles Michel Kamau, yeah. And it's really actually interesting. I think I read it from a post from, um, yeah, the creator of Google. I think he's, um, yeah, I don't forget his name. Yeah, Chris or so. Yeah, so it's actually a nice um, tool. So, but um, apparently, I think one thing about uh, why I actually prefer Netlify, I think it's based on my use case. So, most of the time, I usually like to bundle, like just ensure my applications are just like static. So, if if I'm maybe trying to do some other kind of gymnastics or whatever configuration I need, I just I just limit it to that kind of view because I actually feel maybe it's best to just bundle the JavaScript, just build it and bundle it and then just push it up. So, I think it's just my philosophy though. Um, so I, I've really not seen the case. Well, most of the time, there may be usually cases for me to actually just um, you know try to explore or maybe other options, but I feel it's just based on how I handle, think about the application. I just want to build it and just, yeah, maybe something someone can just, oh, this is the file, push it to Vessel, push it to the file, something. It's just ease of use in my own opinion. Yeah, I don't know if um, you have any, um, oh yeah. So Lucas, I think you said something about um, um, the, Using like for all your projects using Docker, like you always Dockerize your applications with front end on. 
So is it, do you did for all the applications, both your side projects or your company projects or so? Like, I just want to know if it's for all the applications you work on, or it's just for specific types. Um, okay, so actually it's for all of them. I don't remember any project that I haven't containerized everything. Um, yeah, yeah, it's for every project. It's for company projects, for personal projects. I always containerize everything. Uh, there are definitely some projects I've worked on in which I was not the person that did the architecture and they were uh, they were not containerizing the front end, which I just left it as it is and worked uh, in the way that they, that they were already doing it. But every time that I had control over the architecture, I went to the route of containerizing it. But now, like, so, okay, my backends are always definitely going to be containerized. I don't see myself migrating the backends in which I'm architecturing to like a fully serverless approach or something like that. I really think that there's much more benefit in containerizing the backends and having that level of control over the backend because it's generally not as straightforward as front-end builds and front-end deployments. Also, that makes sense to me. I primarily do backend. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. 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 I think for backend, it's a no brainer. You just have to, mm-hmm. I feel. But I actually am reconsidering my position on that for the front end because in the back end, I generally don't have a single monolithical application in the back end. Like sometimes I do, but in other cases, I have a bunch of microservices and I want to deploy them and orchestrate them in the cloud. So, of course, it makes a lot more sense to use Docker containers in, in that case and containerize the, the entire thing. And don't go, don't use a platform that it is so simple in that sense that doesn't give you all the control that you want to orchestrate and and take care of the scalability of your backend. But it's like it's not even the same chart, right? If you if you think of the chart of how your application connects. And you think about every piece that makes the backend work, they're really not connected to the front end. Like they are completely separate environments and separate servers. And for the front end to scale, we really only need to put a load balancer and throw as many <laughs> servers as we want because we're never going to do multiple services or microservices for a front end server. Like, why would you ever want to purchase that complexity just to serve a front end, right? So this is why I really think that front ends are an excellent, excellent candidate for serverless because every single drawback the serverless has is irrelevant for front end deployment. Like what I see people complaining the most about serverless is the difficulty to debug and to see what's going on, to understand the, the flow of data. And also it comes to a point where you're deploying 400 Lambda functions and you're just crazy trying to, to understand what's calling what. But if you're going to deploy front-end using serverless, then you're just going to deploy one function into one cloud 
uh, environment and that's it. You're done. You're not going to do anything else besides that. So I actually think I'm doing it wrong in terms of front-end de- deployment specifically. Um, but for back-end, I would, I would definitely keep the structure that I have. And by the way, just one note, Chuck, you were mentioning the costs of Heroku add-ons. I never used any Heroku add-on. I always used other options. And what I really like about Heroku is that they don't have their own data centers. Uh, I know <laughs> that might sound really weird. Like what I like the most is the fact that they don't have something. But the thing is, because they don't have their own, like DigitalOcean has their own data centers. Yes. Be- because Heroku doesn't, they use AWS. They use AWS, yeah. Which is great to me because I can host my main application in Heroku, but I can host my Redis and MongoDB on AWS, and I'm not going to have any latency because it's in the same data center. So this is what I always did. Instead of using the Heroku add-ons, I would uh, I would plug everything else from AWS. So for example, I may use Mongo Atlas, which is a managed mm-hmm. service for MongoDB, and you can host that on AWS. And I might use Redis Labs, which is a managed oh, I see where you're going. Redis, and I host it on AWS. And then my main container is on Heroku, which is also AWS. So right. I don't have to use the, the add-ons from Heroku. So you just make sure you're in the same region and then your secrets point exactly. to the, the other services. Exactly. And so then Heroku mm-hmm. just becomes a harness to deploy or manage your main app and your accessories, which you have to manage on your own anyway, are, are yeah. all in AWS. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, That's so cool. look, about, in an instance of changing regions, let's assume, I don't know, maybe this is just being, being paranoid. Maybe there's a change of regions. And yeah, maybe today, um, Heroku just decides, oh, maybe no, we don't want to use AWS anymore. I just want to patronize maybe Linode or something on the service. Just, in that instance, wouldn't that solution not? Yeah, because at the end of the day, they're going to be separate. Like, I'm just looking at how spontaneous some changes could be. And so what do you think in that kind of situation, what would you do if there's a change at any point, maybe a massive change? Will you just start thinking of how to migrate out or how to look for a new solution or something? Great question. I would definitely, if that happened, I would definitely fully migrate to AWS, uh, which is where all my other add-ons, if we're calling them add-ons, are. Um, yeah, I would definitely migrate to to AWS, and I they they would never do that out of the blue. They would definitely give us a lot of um, a lot of previous notice before doing that. So we would definitely have enough time to to migrate. And I I don't like that everything needs to be AWS, okay? Like, let me make that clear. I don't like the AWS interface. It's so confusing. It's hard to explain to other developers on my team. I, I think it could be so much simpler. Jeff Bezos, if you're listening to this show, please, <laughs> please, dude, like... You have so much money. Just hire one designer to make that simpler, okay? 
Uh, so yeah, I definitely think it could be way simpler. And they have done some initiatives to simplify that. Like we have AWS Light Sale, which is um, a direct alternative to Heroku, where you can simply push one container and it's going to take care of of serving that. You don't have to configure the DNS and uh, a bunch of other settings yourself. It's simpler. It's still not as simple as Heroku, but it is way simpler than all the other ways in which you can host an application on AWS. But yeah, if that happened, I would migrate to AWS. What I really would like to do, if I could, would be to have my main application on DigitalOcean. And the only reason why I don't do that, and and actually one of the reasons why I want to do that is the pricing. And the other is because DigitalOcean has the simplest Kubernetes managed service out there. Like if you compare deploying Kubernetes to DigitalOcean, AWS, Azure, and GCP, I haven't compared that to Linode, which I think they changed the name to Akamai or something like that. Um, but I know uh, that Akamai bought them. Uh, Akamai bought them. Yeah. So DigitalOcean is just so much simpler uh, to deploy a Kubernetes cluster, and the pricing is a lot more friendlier too. But I don't deploy on DigitalOcean because uh, I would have to get rid of Mongo Atlas, which is my managed service for MongoDB because Mongo Atlas only allows me to serve on AWS, GCP, or Azure. And even if I put it in a very, very close data center, it's not going to be in the same data center. So I don't want that extra latency. So I would rather have more complexity on my plate to the to deploy everything in the same data center than using a different cloud provider and having my DB in a different data center. Yeah, that sounds that sounds nice. I think that answers it a bit. Yeah, that's so. But then I think maybe let's look for an instance, maybe we want to consider the cost, for example, or yeah, let's assume like still the same case case where the um Hiroki decides to actually just or you know migrate or switch to another server. Maybe they want to patronize Linux and they just switch to them. Yeah. So if imagine if you're working on it like a project on a business or a SaaS, let me use that example. Like the cost of migration and the cost of kind of moving that. Yeah, I know yeah obviously costs are going to be there because you know it's a business and so many things will be involved. But then don't you consider that that, that will be also cost? Because yeah, you have your they are switching data centers literally. It's going to affect the performance at a point. So you just have to switch. Maybe moving from here to another. Um, yeah. So is, that, in that instance, it's not better to just use the dime, like the add-ons. Maybe Yoko moves and you're still okay. They, they'll handle the add-ons and so on. Like, I don't know. What do you think about that? Um, um, I actually think the opposite. I think that... If you use the Heroku Adams, then it makes migration much costlier because you're more locked into the platform. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, um, I can only I can't use DigitalOcean because they are not gonna 
deploy on the same data center that is my Redis containers and my MongoDB. Okay, but I can choose from AWS, Azure, and GCP. And I, I can go to either of the three. Um, and because everything is containerized, moving the application would be a breeze. And if it is, if I'm already outside, because every project starts as a monolith, and then if it really, really needs, then it becomes a microservice. Uh, so if it's a microservice and is using Kubernetes, is also pretty easy to, to migrate. So if you're a single monolithic application and it's containerized, you can go to any cloud provider that you want. It's very easy to, to migrate. If you have multiple containers and you're using Kubernetes, it's still pretty easy to migrate. What I avoid is every cloud provider specific solution. Like I would never advise for a new project to use CloudFormation because now you're stuck with AWS. Oh, you now AWS is too pricey and you want to migrate to Azure or GCP. You can't. Mm -hmm. Like you can, but like the migration is going to be much harder because you have a bunch of orchestration rules that only work on AWS because you're using their proprietary tool to right. orchestrate your tech. Uh, so the same goes for the, the add-ons. I would never use the AWS managed, uh, they don't have Redis, right? But they, they have an alternative to Redis that is like exactly the same thing. And I always forget the name. Uh, I would never use that because now I'm stuck with AWS. I would always use uh, a managed Redis solution that is not specific to a cloud provider, but that allows me to deploy in whatever cloud provider I want, if that makes sense. And then if I want to, to migrate, everything in my application is ready for that migration. Even my, my scripts to provision cloud resources, I always use Terraform for that. So it's super easy to migrate if you're using Terraform. Like all your configuration is already, and it doesn't need to be Terraform. You could be using Pulumi. Like any infrastructure uh, as code tool will do the trick. It's just having all your setup in your code base and making sure that you're not using anything that is specific to that vendor. And, and any migration is going to be easy, as easy as it could be. Saying that migration is easy would be a misunderstanding, but it's as easy as it could be. Yeah, that sounds awesome. So Charles, what do you think? Like, do you um, have like any better way to you? Like, what do you think? Um, I mean, a lot of it just depends on how complicated your application is and, and what you're trying to do with it, right? I mean, I've put some toy apps up on you know, Netlify or what have you. Um, but yeah, I, I tend to agree with Lucas to a certain extent. Um, I think there are certain levels of, um, how do we put it, like economy or, or whatever that you get from using the resources on AWS, right, in the AWS way. Like they designed them to work together. But I also agree that, yeah, if you ever have to move it, then yeah, you're kind of locking yourself in. So I think I think there's a lot of it depends in a lot of this stuff. I've also worked for larger companies that 
had their own data centers, right? Or had presence in data centers. And so then it was, you know, provisioning resources was effectively calling the ops team and having them get you a server. Um, so yeah, that would I, make I me think... scary. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, almost every time I've been in that situation, it was more of a pain to get my resources than it would have been if they had just said, "Here's your budget." You know, go to AWS or whatever. But yeah, um, I'm also not a huge fan of the big cloud providers for most apps because most of the time, what you're building out is pretty small and simple, and so you can get away with a lot of things. And so, anyway, I, I I guess I'm just putting a whole bunch of caveats around what Lucas pointed out in the way he does things because, yeah, you know, just just do what works and evolve from there is kind of my approach. So, you know, I'll add things in. I I don't generally use Mongo, so the Mongo Atlas isn't an issue for me. But, um, you know, I. You know, I've been using Postgres forever and I've used the cloud hosted and I've used my own and it mostly just works. And so, you know, okay, it looks like this would solve this problem we're starting to have with scaling or accessibility or whatever. And so, you know, I'll pick up some other technology and add it in. And uh, yeah, I think for most apps, for most companies, small to medium businesses, you probably get away with, you know, putting everything in on one server. And just kind of running it from there until you decide you need a service that does something different. How about you, Chris? Chris, yeah. Yeah, um, so I'm, well, I've done a, a few different things. I, I am very guilty of just running uh, like <laughs> without any containers. So I started, like my first backends were like probably like, I don't know. 2015 2016 so docker was around but like maybe i don't know for some reason i didn't get into it i'm slowly working on on getting that because i i do agree with lucas like if you can get your applications to this you know this dockerized standpoint then yeah you can really you could basically go anywhere right or you know if you want your own mm-hmm. service on premise on in the cloud where you can move it around so we I, I experienced a little bit of, of that with the the startup I was working with um, the last two years. Um, and we were eventually going to migrate everything to, I think, Google. We chose GCP, I think, due to pricing. We found the pricing best for what we needed. But, um, like, yeah, that, that's what we experienced. We said, well, okay, if we can Dockerize everything on our current server, um, then it theoretically should work anywhere. Um, but with, with what Chuck said, it's, it's funny because a lot of people, I mean, it's fun to think about huge scale, right? Like millions and millions of users and, you know, what, you know, do we need load balancing and, you know, geographical servers and all this stuff, but it's amazing, at least in my opinion, nowadays, what, you know, we were doing, um, we had Golang as our backend, I think Jin and with just like four cores, you can handle, you can handle a, a crazy amount of requests. We had, so the startup was in Switzerland, and they they were on the their version of uh, of Shark Tank, and so we we already had done some load tests and stuff. But of course, you're always unsure, like what's actually going to happen when when the TV airing came. Um, but yeah, it handled. I mean, we had like, I think like ten thousand new users and. 
like we didn't even hit, I think, 50% capacity on any resource like memory or, or anything. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely, uh, I'm definitely a fan of, I guess like, yeah, the right tool for the right job. I mean, of course, uh, I, I would argue it would have been nicer, like all the, for my applications had I dockerized it in the beginning, because I think we all know that, um, that like when something breaks, you're, you're, SSHing onto the server and doing some debugging and, and you don't know exactly where it is, but with Docker, at least you have a, like a starting point, like, okay, it's something in the container blow up or, or something like that. Um, so yeah, I, I guess um, I don't know really where I'm going with that, but I, I think it's like start small and pick, you know, the resources and things you need, you think for the project and you'd be surprised how many, how much power small uh, resources can manage. Um, yeah, and then go for there. Yeah, I like that. I like that. And just to reiterate, I know that we've talked a lot, so I know we're close to start to wrapping up the, the episode, but I really want to make it clear for everyone that is listening and thinking, what the hell are you guys talking about? I don't know anything about that. Like, don't worry. Like my first deployment, I think, was a PHP my admin, you know, so back in the day. So I didn't start out doing all those crazy things to make sure that the deployment was as scalable and as organized as possible and super flexible to move around. And if you put that as a requirement for your app to go live, if you don't have the expertise to do that quickly, then you might just not go live ever, you know? So just get things deployed, grow from grow from there. But if I could give one advice is have that little voice in your head saying, am I locked with my current provider? Yes or no? And what could I do to make myself less locked in? I know stories of people that like, They were using companies that were using AWS and their bill was super expensive, but they had everything organized in a way that it was so easy for them to migrate to GCP or Azure or any other cloud provider they, that they didn't even have to because they could negotiate with AWS a major price reduction. And if your company is like super locked in into your provider, If you get to a point where like a, investing a lot of money into the cloud provider, what leverage do you have to negotiate? Where are you going to tell them, hey, please reduce the bill or else I'm going to stick with you? So <laughs> that's, not, <laughs> that's not very uh, compelling, right? But if you say, hey, my entire application is containerized. We're using Kubernetes to orchestrate, so we're not using our proprietary technology. Uh, And plus, even our cloud provisioning is, is already documented with uh, um, infrastructure as code uh, tool. So would you like to give me some discounts so that I can stay with your platform? That's a much, much better position to be in, right? But this is like so far in the future, so far in the future. You should not be worrying about that scenario when you're just starting out the project. So start out with whatever you know 
is the best you can do quickly and then grow from there. But just be mindful while you're growing. Be mindful of every decision that you make because every architectural decision that you make from the moment you start and while you're growing is going to make it easier or harder for you to migrate to a better cloud environment in the future. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's actually true. So it's actually best to consider like um, ensuring that you're not kind of locked into your vendor. Very important because most um, services, like for example, I actually reference um, David's um, post on his migration from I think AWS to the um, to its own personal cloud. I think um, 36 signals, right? I really loved that series because I kind of followed it and. I was kind of wondering how, like, because the move was so smooth. I know, I know a lot of people that use Hey, the email service, and mm-hmm. they were like, no downtime. They didn't really experience much. I was like, whoa, did you guys really move? Like, I was really um, fascinated about the fact. Usually, a move usually could cause some certain things. Maybe customers will complain, oh, the service is down here, this and that. But it was so smooth. So yeah, I think. It's actually based on what you said. So I think they ensured that they were not locked into their vendor. So when they made the move, it was so easy to just plug out and plug into their own customized server. So it wasn't really a big biggie for them. Like they just moved that on. No, I don't think any of their customers just noticed that until they just until they made the announcement that like, hey, we've moved. And I think on I um um Charles, I don't know if you followed the um I think. The meetup in um I think in the Netherlands or so Ruby on Ways where uh, Rails World yes Rails World yeah where yeah was I was there yes exactly and we're like I think it was like a countdown where I think it was Fernando or someone on their team that was trying to remove the last um close the last server and I, like that was really fun like I was like mm-hmm. oh like wow so much um preparation and kind of thoughts put into the code so they were able to just switch out and there was really no difficulty. I think they did it on stage. I yeah, I think Charles was probably there so you can kind of explain yeah. better how it happened. So it's actually very vital that you don't become like vendor locked in. So I think I understand that very well kind of um yeah. What do you think Chris? Yeah I think it, it goes back to what Lucas mentioned too like and, and what you're saying is yeah this this vendor lock um can be a headache um also like if you're a beginner don't don't worry about it but as you build your stuff i think a a big part of this could be perhaps its own episode um about like some of these doc is is documentation right so even if yeah it it may seem trivial something small but i'm telling you now I, i know from experience if you forget like oh yeah this this service here talks to this service and you only remember that by seeing when the bug shows up. Uh, yeah. So document, you know, these, whatever it is, interfaces or, or how, how services talk to each other, because that helps so much um, and would hopefully lead to these, these much smoother trans, transitions between vendors. So. Yep. Um, that was a lot. I think we can yeah. start wrapping up before we, we get to two hours of, of, of podcast. 
Um, oh, actually, if I may say just one last thing regarding the, the subject is vendor lock-in is not just about cloud providers. You know, for example, right. recently um, I was thinking about links that I had in some of the projects, like when you have links pointing to external services. For example, a lot of companies use Calendly, for example, to, to handle their, their bookings, you know. So Calendly is going to generate a scheduling link. If you put that link directly into your website and you use that in your emails, in your documents, etc., you won't ever be able to change that link ever. Like if you want to change the system that you're using to book your meetings, you can't because you're going to be worried about every single sales material that you sent in the past with the previous link. So even for that, it makes sense for you to think about vendor lock-in. You know, it's even in those scenarios. And in that case, what you could do is use a, a link management system. And then you could have like a vanity link that redirects to the tool that you're actually going to be using. And then if you ever want to migrate, you can just migrate where the link is pointing. But yeah, these are just things that we need to keep in mind as we're building our system. So it's not just locked into your cloud provider, it's being locked into any external tool that your company depends on. And think about how would you handle a migration to another tool if you ever need to face that situation? Because I'm telling you, you're most definitely going to face that situation. The only scenario where you're not going to have to worry about migration is if your company dies. So you don't want to prepare for that scenario. So you better prepare for the scenario where you're going to need to migrate. Okay, uh, let's start wrapping up. So let's just do a quick round of promos and then we can close or... You may need to explain what you mean by promos. Oh yeah, that's true because we didn't have promos in, in this show before, right? So promos is our shameless way to talk about the things that we're working on and promote our stuff so that we can convert some of you beautiful people that are consuming our free content into maybe followers on our social medias or uh, customers in some of the projects that we're working on. So this is the promos section. Uh, Chuck, do you want to kick things off? Sure. So um, I've been jumping back in a little bit on the React stuff. Um, So top end devs, I'll try and keep this really brief, but it's hard. Anyway, uh, so top end devs, initially we just did the podcasts. And then as I've talked to people over the last years, um, it's, it's become pretty apparent that some people are just getting stuck in their careers. Now, a lot of the people that I talk to that don't know what to do next are new, right? And so they're just like, what do I do? And it's like, just keep learning, you know, keep moving forward, keep, you know, meeting people. But then I talk to people who have been doing this for two, three, four, five, ten 10 years. And they're like, where do I go from here? Right. And so top end devs is, uh, I've kind of taken it to that next place where it's like, okay, let me help you know what to do to get to that next level of your career. Right. And, and the principles still apply to newer developers. It's just that the fruit is a little lower hanging for newer developers. So, um, anyway, what we're doing is, uh, I tell people that the three things you need to do in order to take your career to the next place are build your skills, build your network and build your personal brand. And so, 
um, we're putting together essentially systems for people to use to build their skills. And so we're putting together meetups and videos and courses and things like that, right? Uh, to build their network, um, we're putting together uh, three times a week for our different genius plans, um, which are going to be React, JavaScript, and uh, Ruby. Um, we're going to meet three times a month, um, and we're going to talk about different stuff. So we may have somebody come and present on something one of those weeks, but the other weeks we're going to have more of a Q&A or open discussion, or we're going to have... Um, you know, maybe members present or a networking session or something like that, right? Where we bring in some of this other stuff. And then um, for building your personal brand, we're also going to have content and courses about building content. Um, you know, and so for, for me, the ones that have worked best for me are YouTube and podcasting. And so the, that's where I'm going to push people, right? Um, I, I tend to pan the blogging um, you can make it work, but that's not really my cup of tea and I don't think it's as effective. So anyway, so what I'm working on is getting launched the JavaScript geniuses and the React geniuses and effectively getting those meetups scheduled and then start putting out the videos. And the videos are going to be, I'm going to build this thing in React, right? So I may do it in Redwood JS or Remix or Next or Gatsby or something else or maybe i'll you know i'll say hey i've got this custom backend that i built in rails and i'm going to build the front end on it or whatever right and so then we'll build different kinds of apps and that way you can see how some of these things go in um it's rather frustrating to me when i get in and it's like this uh, tutorial on this toy app that doesn't really have to integrate with anything and so it works great there and if i follow the steps it works great for me and then i try and go and do it in real life and it's like it doesn't work so anyway, so uh, React Geniuses is is what's coming. Um, I'm also just going to toss out there that we're getting ready to launch the premium podcasts. So if you want the podcast without the ads, you can get that. If you want the, if you get any of the others, so the video series or the meetup series or both, then you'll get access to the podcast without the ads for free. So anyway, that's what I'm getting ready to launch. Uh, we should have it up here within the next week or two. So go check it out. And that'll be at reactgeniuses.com. Nice, nice. Awesome. Uh, you might want to send uh, the link to it here. So reactgenius.com in the comments. Yeah, section. I'll put it in the comments. Uh, it's not up yet, so it'll be up. My birthday is two weeks from today. It'll be up by then. Okay. Uh, Peter, you're gonna, you were going to say something? Yeah, I mean, that's very awesome. Like, yeah, I know a lot of people that actually need this, right? Because starting out, it was this course. Okay, for my, own, for my own experience, starting out, it wasn't really easy. Because then I was in kind of in a neighborhood where I didn't really have masters to developers and maybe people who could help and people could mentor you and so on and so forth. But then with this, I feel this is actually going to be very nice for beginners and people are starting out and yeah i think this is a very great improvement yeah yeah i agree a lot of tutorials are uh too into a perfect universe and it ends up not being very realistic so i appreciate the thought that chuck is putting into making this more real world experience um all right so my promo is gonna be unvoid so is unvoid.com and they offer 
all kinds of food stack software development services. And we do that in a performance basis. The difference between that and every other company that provides software development services is that in every other company, you're going to pay by the hour. And you don't really know how much value you're getting from that. But at Envoy, you're only going to pay when the tasks are delivered and approved by the client. So even if they are delivered and the client doesn't like the, the quality in which they are or the code standards or something like that, they can just ask for changes and it's only going to become billable after the client says that they are adhering to a, to a certain quality standard. So it's really the safest way for any company to outsource or staff augment their software development teams. And also every single engineer at Envoy works in the United States time zones. So companies don't have issues with trying to talk to their engineers or, and they being in a completely different time zone and not being able to talk to them. So yeah, if you're interested in that or you know someone that might benefit from that, I highly encourage you to check out Envoy.com, U-N-V-O-I-D.com. So, yeah. Uh, how about you, Chris? Do you have anything you'd like to promote? Sure, yeah. Uh, I'm a little bit probably stretched too thin recently, so I'm just going to keep it simple. Uh, I guess I would just point people to my blog, um, chrisfru.in. I do have some other prod products and projects hopefully coming out. Um, but, yeah, I, I guess following this theme, what I really focus on in my blog is or really how my blog started is basically whenever I would encounter anything at, you know, I've been, I've worked for startups or an in industry and it was either really hard or like a bunch of just trial and error that we all know, I would just be like, okay, I'm going to write a blog post about this and hopefully someone will find, you know, they ran into the same thing I ran into and this is how, this is the solution I came up with. Um, and so with that, along with my blog, I, I have various courses. Um, so in it quite spanning quite wide um, languages and, and frameworks, I have some TypeScript courses. Uh, I have a Golang course. Um, and, and it's really focused on more, I mean, of course, you're not going to build an entire SaaS app, but they are like, I built a Go course recently that's, you know, how to deploy it on Docker and, and get everything up and running. Um, like it was, it's like a cron job service. So really trying to focus at integrating more than, just one thing um and in what like a, some toy example so yeah by the way i highly encourage everyone to check out chris's website just because it's so much fun i was just looking at it and there are just so many random bits of of rainbows and colorful things it's just that's a cool personal website dude like that's really really cool I like the ASCII computer that you did on the left and you can actually click on subscribe or, or close forever. I thought that was, that was really well done. That's really interesting. Congrats. Yeah. Thanks. I, I'm a bit, I've been kind of paranoid recently because I've heard stories like, because right now I only have dark mode. I know that's kind of like a bad practice and people are like, if I see a website like that, I won't even read it. So maybe I have to bring back a, a light mode. Uh, pretty soon. Dan Benjamin <laughs> used to say that. <laughs> yeah, nice. Um, how about you, Peter? Yeah, I don't really have much. Yeah, I think I write articles for publications. So, refine the dev, 
and um, I think I'll send the link to. So, um, yeah, I just write publications and random thoughts about things concerning React and so on. So if you just check, we find the dev as well. As, yeah, I don't know if you've worked with it. It's kind of like a very nice um, framework for building React applications. You can spin up your admin dashboards, your B2B applications at one go. Yeah, so I think it's something worth checking out. Let me just post the link. And what is the best place for people to read your articles? Yeah, mainly on my LinkedIn. Yeah, I just post them on my LinkedIn, right? So I think my LinkedIn is cumulated with all my articles. So yeah, I just paste them on my LinkedIn. I will share my LinkedIn profile as well. So yeah, I just, most of the time, I'm there looking at awesome posts, like maybe migration posts. Yeah, because I really enjoyed the series of um, David creating or always migrating. Yeah, I, I just look at some other posts and so on and so forth. So yeah. I think just catch me up on LinkedIn with my post. I think that works. That works. Nice, nice. Okay, all right. Um, everyone, thank you so much for joining. It was a pleasure to meet uh, Peter, Chris, Jack. I already know you for a while, but it's always good to yeah. to to be on the show with you guys. Uh, it was it was really nice. Uh, I really liked this. This format, it was a bit of a longer episode. We're maybe going to try to to keep it shorter in the next ones. Um, but but yeah, I, I really enjoyed how how much depth we were able to, to put into it. So I just wanted to, to thank everyone for, for joining. And I'll see you all in the next one. Next out, everybody. <laughs>